Well, many of you know that uh, Jesus loved to teach in parables. Uh, parables are little word pictures that were trying to communicate a central point. And one of the more famous parables that Jesus taught was the parable of the soils. Uh, he talks about seed being thrown out on four different soils or four different surfaces. And those soils or surfaces describe, according to Jesus, the four different ways people respond to the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Christ's sacrifice and resurrection for sin. Jesus says there's four different ways that people respond to that. And the first seed goes out, he says, on the path. Right, the seed never has any soil to grow in. The gospel is heard and yet never even considered. And Jesus says this is Satan taking away the word. This represents anyone that maybe hears the gospel and is not even remotely interested and then just passes by. And then the second seed, Jesus says, goes out on the rocky ground. The rocky ground, the seed uh, on this surface, it has a little bit of something to grow in, but not sustainably. This represents, according to Jesus, those who hear the gospel but have no root. Right? The seed appears to grow for a little while, uh, but because it has no soil to grow in, it dies. And Jesus says this represents someone who may initially love the message of the gospel. Uh, they like it, but Jesus says that when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, they walk away from the gospel. They have no root. And then the third soil, the third seed goes out on the third soil, and that is of the thorns. And once again, there's something there for the seed to kind of latch onto in that thorn, but there again is no sustainable soil, so it dies. And Jesus says this represents those who might hear the gospel and like it again kind of initially, but he says the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. And then there's the fourth soil. The seed goes out on that fourth soil, and this is the good soil. The seed was made for this soil. It dies, the seed dies, it roots itself in the ground, and it bears much fruit. And this is the authentic Christian, the true believer. They hear the gospel, they respond with joy, and through the trials, through the temptations on account of the word, through the desires for other things, through the cares of the world, they don't always get it right. But they repent and believe and they press on towards Jesus. Four seeds, four different kinds of soils. And in this, Jesus teaches us there are four different ways to respond to the gospel. And those middle two soils in particular show us that trials from without and temptations from within test whatever faith we might claim to have. Revealing what kind of soil our heart really has rooted in trials from without temptations from within don't create friends but reveal how the seed of the gospel has fallen upon our hearts and this is exactly what pastor james has been helping us to consider as we've walked through this book he says uh, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds knowing as we considered a few weeks ago knowing god's doing something in those trials and one way or another, right, everyone in this room is facing trials from without or temptations from within. Oftentimes we're facing both, aren't we? I think about our church. The elders have been burdened for so many of you in this church. Many of you are walking through some heavy trials in these days. Many of you are 
square inside of verses 2 to 4 of James 1. And you're experiencing this testing that James is talking about. Therefore, we need to be doing in these days as a church, we need to be doing a lot of asking, right? Because many of us still do lack for wisdom amidst these trials. And so that's what James, you remember, he counseled us, ask for wisdom. That was verse 5 to 8, amidst these trials, knowing that God will give it to us. He'll give us wisdom to know how to navigate. No matter our station, James then went on to tell us whether rich or poor, we keep our eyes upon heaven. That was verses 9 to 11. We will remain steadfast and we will make it home to heaven as we do. And we will get that crown of life. That was verse 12 last week. James 1, 2 to 12. And then last week, we also considered, James helped us consider the temptations from within. That was verses 13 to 15, where we saw that God cannot be tempted by sin. Therefore, he does not tempt us to sin. Therefore, when lured by our own passions, which lead to sin and ultimately to death, we should never say in those moments, when we are tempted to sin and we choose to sin, we should never say in those moments, God made me do this. God made me do this. Because God cannot be tempted or tempt others with sin. This is ultimately born out of our own broken and sinful hearts. And so today we come to the positive side of the ledger. While we are the authors of the sin and its consequences in our lives, what we're going to see is that God is the author of all the good in our lives. We are the authors of the sin and the evil, those circumstances that come as a result, but God is the author of the good in our lives. And so that's what we'll see from verses 16 to 18. Do not be deceived, beloved. Believe the truth amidst your trials and temptations. That's the big idea this morning. Don't be deceived by lies. Believe the truth about the goodness of God amidst your trials and temptations. That's the big idea. Believe the truth about God. Don't believe lies. Truth, not deceptive lies. Let's dig in, shall we? James chapter 1, verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Know this, verse 19. Know this. Two points this morning. Here's the first. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. You can see that there in verse 16. That's the first word of counsel for us this morning. You can see it there again in verse 16. And it's not hard to wonder why James would say this, right? Trials from without and temptations from within are dizzying, aren't they? They disorient us. The boxer Mike Tyson said it well. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. (laughs) some of you are uh, familiar with that game where you put your head down on a wiffle ball bat and you spin around as fast as you can and you come out and you can't hardly stand up, right? Trials from without and temptations from within are like that. They're dizzying, right? We have plans, but then we get punched. We have plans, but then we get spun around by sin or by sickness. And when the consequences or the ramification of trials or temptation come into our lives, we are all the more susceptible, guys, to deception in those moments. We are always having to fend off lies all the time, 
But when these things come upon us, the heat gets turned up and they reveal our functional theology. They reveal that soil that our hearts are planted in. What we actually believe about God, what we actually believe about ourselves. And James wants us to be aware of that deception in those times. He wants us to know that in these moments, the volume of lies will be turned up and they're going to be easy to hear. We think about the name of Satan. Deceiver. That's his name. Deceives. He knows. Satan knows that life is hard. He knows the parable of the soils. He knows how when life punches us in the face that he can swoop in and tempt us to believe lies more easily. We can think about the story of Job as an illustration of this. The Lord says Job is a man of integrity. He fears God. He turns from evil. And Satan says back to God. Well, basically, that's because everything's great in his life. Take some bad or take some good away. Insert some bad. He'll start to curse you then. Deception when trials, temptations come in. That's exactly what's happening. And that's exactly what Job's wife tells him to do. The bad comes in. He loses his family. His wife says to him, curse God and die. But Job wouldn't. At least not at this point. And you want to know why? Because at this point of the story of Job, he wasn't deceived. He didn't listen to those deceptive lies about God. He wasn't deceived because he knew the God of whom he believed in. And he knew himself. So the question is, do you? Have you noticed how important good doctrine is to James in the midst of trials and tribulations? Have you noticed how much he's been leaning upon good doctrine? If you look back at the beginning of the book, look there in verse 1, you see he's given us the trinity. And then also he's helped us understand the nature of God in verse 5 as a God who gives generously to all without reproach. In verse 13, he helped us understand the nature of God to not be tempted with evil or to tempt others with evil in verse 13. And he'll teach us here in a moment how anything good issues from God in verse 17. And so we might be tempted to think that the thing that kind of makes the church grow is practicality. Less doctrine, more practicality. And to be clear, I don't want those two things to seem like they're at odds, but I just want us to see, church family, if we are going to stand the test of the fires of this world and come out as beautiful, refined gold that shines to a world in need, that perseveres to the end, we are going to have to know sound doctrine. That's what James is doing. We are, in other words, we're going to have to know what God's like and who he is and then also what we're like. He's leaning upon that. We're going to have to know the truth. We can't have our minds coddled with elementary truths about God if we expect to stand up to the cuts that are coming in a world full of deception. James is teaching us that we need to know and understand who God is and what God is like. In other words, we're going to have to have a robust understanding of the doctrine of God. And likewise, in a world of deception, we're going to have to know and understand uh, ourselves. We're going to have to have a robust understanding of the doctrine of man. Otherwise, we'll be deceived when trials from without or temptations from within hit us. We think about this. How do, how do people that understand themselves to be Christians, how do they get to a place where they think it pleases God to storm the capital? How does that happen? How do people that understand themselves to be Christians deny that the Bible has spoken clearly about matters of race or gender or sexuality? How does that happen? How do people get deceived like that? Well, James would seem to be teaching us that they didn't have a good understanding of God and of themselves. 
They weren't aware of deception that was all around them. And even when we read the New Testament, we find time and again, don't we? The number one concern of the apostles and their disciples in the New Testament is false doctrine from within the church. That's the clear uh, illustration that we see from throughout in the New Testament. Jesus' final words, right? Go make disciples. Go make learners of me. The final words of Paul to the church in Ephesus after pouring out years into that church plant. He says to those elders, this is the last time he's going to see them. Literally, some of the last words he says to them. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock and from among your own selves. From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw the way the disciples after them. Final words, Paul says to Timothy, a man of whom he invested in for many years of his life. He says in 2 Timothy 4, 2, preach the word. Why? Verses 3 and 4, because the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. They'll give in to deception amidst their own trials and temptations. And they'll just surround themselves with people that will just tell them exactly what they want to hear. I want to be clear about something. Some churches, right, can be so doctrine heavy that they hardly even think about the applications of life. But friends, the weakness of the church in America today comes right back to what Paul or what James is counseling here. They're being deceived in so many ways. Why? Well, because so often they surround themselves with teachers to suit their own passions. Instead of surrounding themselves with teachers and pastors that would preach the word in season and out. And share with them with clarity who God is and what God's like. And what we are and what we are like. And all of that amidst a world of deception that is so full of trials and tribulations and temptations. And so, beloved, don't be deceived. Deception abounds. And James is saying right there, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. We must give ourselves to understanding what the Bible teaches about God and about ourselves so that we will not be men and women that are deceived. We need the truth. And that leads me to the second point from this morning. How is it we don't become deceived? Second By believing the word of truth. By believing the word of truth. Don't be deceived. Believe the word of truth. You can see those words. Look down there in verse 18. You see those words right there. We're going to get to them in just a minute. But as I said, James wants us to not be deceived by believing the truth. Believing the truth about ourselves, especially about God. But before we we recall, he, he wanted us to understand that God is not tempted by evil. Therefore, he tempts no one towards evil. And and here we get the opposite. God doesn't tempt with evil, but instead he's the source of all the good and the perfect. That's the truth he wants us to believe. That's how we fight off deception. Believing in the truth of God's eternal goodness. Believing in God's The truth of God's eternal goodness. See, when the dizzying effect of trials and temptations come upon us, the first and most natural question to ask is whether or not God is good. Right? That's exactly where James goes. Did you notice that? He knows that. He's lived that. 
He's aware of that question when trials and tribulations come all over us. We can think about our own context, right? We can think about the Holocaust. We can think about hundreds of years of slavery in America and Jim Crow laws that followed and the ways that racism still rears its ugly head today. We can think about the ongoing scourge of abortion, world wars that kill millions, or often in our own personal lives, a loved one is suddenly or tragically struck down. And the million-dollar question comes into our minds. If God is sovereign and good, how can there be so much evil in the world? Everyone's been there. And if you haven't been, you will be. And it won't be once. It'll happen numerous times. And as we've been saying this morning, trials from without and temptations from within are dizzying. Deceptions abound inside of them. We're spinning around. We're trying to understand what's true. In particular, what's true about God, what's true about ourselves and our world. And Pastor James steps into all of that and says that when these times come, count it all joy, which is not what you expected him to say, right? And of course, as we said weeks ago, this is not masochistic, like, oh, this is great. We're all suffering. That's not his point. His point is count it all joy because you know God's not left his throne. He's over the trials and tribulations. He's under the trials and tribulations. He's in them and he's doing something that will lead to perfection, right? That's verse four. But stay awake, he's saying. Deception abounds. Don't be deceived. Believe the truth about the goodness of God. And this is helpful to be reminded when we started, James, the context of whom he's speaking into. Do you remember who he's talking to? Remember the context of these immediate people? Look back there in verse 1. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion. He's writing to a bunch of new Christians that have been dispersed because of their faith in Christ. In other words, trials and failures and temptation are not abstract realities to to James or to his listeners. That's exactly the people that he's writing to. I mean, just try to think about our own experience of of what could happen if we were dispersed because of our faith in Christ. Imagine placing your faith in Jesus and then a few years down the road, some of you have to move immediately to Mexico. And then another group of you have to go up to Canada somewhere and still others of you have to go down to Bolivia somewhere. Imagine if that happened to our church, just just scattered everywhere because it was so much suffering, so much trials, so much temptation that we had to bolt. And then here I was, me and Joey sitting back here and Chris and Chris, and we're just sitting there and Ray just writing letters going, all right, guys, I know it's hard out there, but remember God's good. This is not abstract to him. Some of the people I'm sure were saying, I trust Jesus and this is what I get. Or maybe you've been the victim of another confessing Christian's sin. And maybe you might be tempted to conclude the same. Or maybe you've struggled with the same sin and can't seem to get over it. Giving into your passions time and again. You know verse 15 all too well. And maybe you've been tempted to conclude, you know, maybe God isn't good. James says, no, we're the ones that are not good. And second, he's the one that is, verse 17. And I want you to pay attention, guys. Take a look at the text there. By the way, if you're new to this kind of teaching, the sermon will go so much better when the Bible's right in front of you. We're just going to look at it as we go. Take a look at that word there that he uses. He says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. 
In other words, the source of all that is good and perfect is from God himself since he is the source of the good. Right? We can see this at the very beginning of the Bible, right? When God makes the world out of nothing, he speaks and the world comes into existence. And at the end of every day, what did he say? It is good. You can do that again. It is good. Yeah. And he said, and it is good, and it is good, and it is good. And then he gets to the end after he makes humanity in verse 31. He says, it is very good. Very good. And he can say that because he's the one that is good themselves. And therefore he can deem it good. Because since he knows what is good, since he made it. Otherwise, how else could you determine if something was good? I'll give you a bit of an example of this. Imagine you were the essence of flatness. Imagine you're the essence of flatness and you created flat land. You would be able to tell if something was flat or if something was not flat, right? So it is with the goodness of God. From the very beginning of the Bible to the end, God is the definition of the good and the perfect. Nothing and no one else is. He's the one that has come in and said to this world, this is good, this is not good. That's, that's why he could say that this is. these are all the good trees you can eat from, and this is the one bad tree you can't eat from. And he's able to do that because every good and perfect gift is from him because he is the source of good in and of itself. And friends, this is one of the strongest arguments for the existence of God in the world. Everyone on planet earth, including the most passionate atheist, and that may be you, and you've come in here to see what we Christians think about things. Welcome. Glad you're here. But everyone on planet Earth, including the most passionate atheists, cannot help but have a moral compass. Everybody does. Everybody on planet Earth innately thinks this is good, that's bad. That's bad, that's good. If you were born in China, if you were born in the plains of Sahara Desert, if you are born in the mountains of Peru, everyone is born with an innate sense of right and wrong, good and bad. Everyone is born with a sense of morality. And so if there is no God and we are simply one big cosmic accident and we are merely dancing to the tune of our own DNA or socially constructed ideas, then there is no room, zero, there's no room to say that something is good or bad. Murder is not bad. It just is. The birth of a child is not good. It just is. That's the worldview if there is no God. But if we were created in the image of God, We then were made to image that goodness and especially not the badness. Unlike animals who have no sense of justice but only instinct, therefore the existence and desire for the good and the perfect reveals that there must be a God and that God must know what good and perfect are and as a consequence must know what bad is. But more than that, we see from Scripture, he must have planted it upon humanity's heart. And, of course, we don't even have to, actually, Romans 1 makes the point, you don't even need the Bible to see that, right? Because we all just innately know this is good, this is bad. There is a God because they see it in the world, that there's a world of existence. And we have this morality in us that just is there. And even more than that. If God is good and if he made the world for his own glory, then it is only right and good of him to expect of us to be fruitfulness of that good and walk away from the bad. He would need to give us a word that would tell us so as to orient that image of God within us, to orient that innate sense of morality. He would need to give us a word that would tell us that's good, that's bad. And that's exactly what he has given us, not only by creating us in the image of God, but in this book. 
He's made it clear to us the core sense of the word, what is good and what is bad, which orients not only our own conscience but our lives so that we can come to a verse like this and we can know what good is and what bad is. We are not animals given to act upon our own instincts or base desires. We are not in the dark just trying to figure out what's good, what's bad. We were placed in the world to know and enjoy and display the eternal goodness of God. And friends, I bring all of this up because this, at least for me, is a core aspect to help me through the times when I'm dizzied in trials and temptations. When I see a lot of evil come on and I experience it, I see it, I read about it. This is one of the things that I turn to. This is one of the doctrines of God I come to. One of the apologetics I turn to because I go, wait a minute, this is terrible. And I'm tempted to believe God can't be good for that to happen. And the first question I ask myself, well, where did I get that idea? If there is no God and there is no good or bad, then why am I so passionately against that? Where did that come from? It has to be embodied in something and someone. So then that leads me to the next question. Where might I find a God that embodies the good? And that's when I go back to his word. If it's not from God, this, 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 this morality within me, it's not from him. It's just socially constructed ideas. I'm in a worse place, not a better place. That's true. But the reality is, friends, God is real and the good that we see and desire is from him. And so let us not be deceived by trials and temptations and conclude otherwise. Good gifts and perfect gifts are all around us. Even in this broken world full of sorrows. But before we even list those good and perfect gifts, I want you to notice something else in the text. Another uh, word that's being used there that James is using. He says that he not only says that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Look at the word. It says that it's coming down. There's every good and every, every perfect gift from above that is from God and it's coming down. I want you to underline those last three letters of the word coming there. The good and the perfect gifts are coming down from the Father of lights. Note what is happening here. It doesn't just happen once. It doesn't just happen intermittently. The verb behind this word here, guys, is a present active verb. One of my favorite things in my study this week. In other words... What James is saying is that every good and every perfect gift are coming down from the Father lights perpetually. If you ever, if you haven't been there or you can imagine going to the Niagara Falls and just seeing the water coming and 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 coming. That's what God's good and perfect gifts are like. They just keep coming and coming and coming right now. Coming, 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 coming. They never stop. They never stop. It's like the light from the sun. The light from the sun as we see it come in this morning. It just keeps coming down. It never stops. Good and perfect gifts come down day after day. That's why Jeremiah could look in a beleaguered city that's been wasted in Jerusalem and say, God's mercies are new every morning. This is why James uses that language of the father of lights. Friends, when you wake up in the morning and you see light every day, remind yourself of this fact that no matter how dark things get, no matter how bad things get, no matter how many times you run to the darkness of your own sin, 
No matter how bad the economy gets, no matter how confusing the moral compass of our society gets, no matter how bad your family situation gets, no matter how bad your job gets, good and perfect gifts keep coming down like those rays of the sun because God is fathering them. He's bringing them down. He's generating them to us day after tireless and dizzying day. They're there every day. They just keep coming down. And I want you to notice, too, what the text says. There is no variation or shadow due to change in that light. Right? God is fathering the light. So just as the light comes down all the time and never stops. But sometimes, like, we can look at the light and, right, you stand in the shade. Or maybe the, it's nighttime and it kind of the light changes. You know, maybe the fog comes over and you can't see the light as well. James goes out of his way to say God's love is not like that. God's goodness is not like that. It doesn't sort of change a little bit, a little bit this way or very. It doesn't change. It keeps coming down at the same rate it always has come down. And so while you might see the light fade away in a shadow, or you may see the sun go down and the light varies, God's fathering the light of every good and every perfect gift won't be like that. It'll keep coming. They won't stop. They won't change. Like an eternal rain, the drops of goodness will just keep coming down. Dousing we rebels with happy gifts after happy gifts. No variation, no shadow, no change in his incessant goodness as it rains down upon us day after day. No matter the trial, no matter the temptation, no matter how much we might feel like it's not there. James is trying to orient his flock that's been dispersed to go, you can't live in what you feel, you got to live in what you know. And let those feelings live in light of that truth. I get that it's hard. But God's good and perfect gifts, they just keep coming down. Kids, if you're those kids who are here this morning, I'm sure a lot of you like uh, Christmas. I loved Christmas. I guess I still do love Christmas. Uh, Kids, you remember Christmas, right? You remember how much, it was not that long ago, you were looking forward to getting gifts, right? You couldn't wait all December. Till December the 25th came, right? When I was a kid, I had good gifts from my parents and they would always, they were always good. They were always fan, fantastic. I got Transformers when I wanted Transformers and G.I. Joe men when I wanted G.I. Joe men and these kinds of things. <clears throat> my family was good. They always gave me good gifts. But what James is saying here, kids, is that every day is like Christmas. Every day is like Christmas. Every day he's giving good gifts. Every day he's giving uh, perfect gifts. Kids, you need to know that. Don't lose sight of that. It's not, God's not like just like one day of the year, you know, you get some really good gifts and maybe on your birthday. It's not changing like that. Every single day is Christmas. Every day God is giving good and perfect gifts. Every day the Father of life sends down the light of his good and perfect gifts every day. And so if you but just had faith to see them, trust to see them, eyes to see them, God will give you grace to see them. And that's the kicker, isn't it? Having faith to see those good gifts, those perfect gifts. When we're going through trials from without or temptations from within, we are easily deceived because we so focus on the bad. We lose sight of the good gifts of God. We get nearsighted and we give in to deception. And James is saying, beloved brothers and sisters, don't be deceived. Don't lose sight of the truth that God's good and perfect gifts are coming down right now. You got to learn to see them so that you won't doubt God and be driven and tossed by the wind. 
And some of you are asking right now, well, where? Where are they? Because I'm in there, Nathan. It's where I'm at. I'm having trouble seeing the good and perfect gifts. I'm having trouble seeing God is good. Trials are speaking loud. The temptations are speaking loud. Where is it? Where, where are all the good and perfect gifts from God right now? It really does seem, you might be saying, it really does seem like the light has stopped from being fathered. I, I don't have much more than a nightlight in me right now, Nathan. Flicker. Or some of you might be saying something different. Maybe, maybe some of you are saying, I don't know why the father of lights would ever give me any light. Maybe some of you are saying, why would he give me a good gift to begin with? I've given into temptation so many times that more than I can count. Desire has given birth to sin over and over, and it's brought forth a lot of death in my life. Maybe some of you are saying, I can't imagine why God would ever give me anything good, much less a perfect gift. God is good, you might be saying. Problem is, you might be saying, I'm not, and I have no hope that he would ever want to give a sinner like me anything good. Maybe some of you are saying that. And so whether you are feeling like this, there is, there is variation or change in the goodness of God because your trial is so bad. Or if you are thinking God would never desire to give anything good to you because you are so bad. In either case, let me expose you to the quintessential good and perfect gift from God that you can look at every day and conclude with James that God is good. You ready for it? No matter how bad things get, guys, I can, you can, we can count it all joy when we face these trials and these temptations. And one of the ways, one of the things that we can look at, one of the preeminent things we can look at to conclude us of this so that we're not given into that deception and we conclude that he is good is found right there in verse 18. Look at it. I believe this verse means to illustrate Every good and every perfect gift that keeps coming down day after tireless day from the Father of lights. The reason why, as you read that verse again, the reason why I think he does this, what seems to be in the logic of James is he's saying, here's an example, verse 18, of a good and perfect gift that keeps coming down. Because this thing that he's pointing at is the most natural, or ought I say supernatural, the best supernatural good and perfect gift that would lead us to no other conclusion that God is and always will be good. Beloved, when you are walking through the valley of the shadow of death and are tempted to say that God has abandoned you or worse, that God simply cannot be good. When you are tempted to give into deception and believe lies, remember, look at verse 18, remember of God's own desire, of God's own will, of God's own free choice. He gave you eternal life. And you did nothing to deserve it. Nothing. In fact, you did everything to not deserve it. And he did that. He gave that gift to you. He gave eternal life to you. Not only only that you didn't deserve it. Not only that you really didn't deserve it. But he did it at the cost of his own son. If you think that you're too far from the goodness of God because you're too sinful. Well, friend, look no farther than the invitation of Christ to come and be born again. Look, look no farther from the, than the Father of Light's willingness to invite you into the light as He is in the light. In order that you may no longer walk in the darkness, but instead walk in the light. Are you doubting the goodness of God in your trial? Or your ongoing temptation? 
Don't believe deception, Christian. God is the essence of good. He manifests that goodness in your life in his glad-hearted willingness to pluck you out of hell and give you heaven. Through no work, through no act, no intelligence of your own, while you were still a sinner, God freely set his affection upon you by his infinite grace so that through you, yes, you, and yes, through me, he might show his love and beauty and life and goodness to the world. That's what he goes on to say. Even though you did nothing to deserve it and everything to not deserve it. Of his own will. Circle that. Of his own will. Of his own will. Not your will. Not your choice. But his good and gracious and free will. He brought us forth, the text says. How? By the word of truth. Some of you are already asking me about James 2. Can I let, can I tell you to look at James 1.18 before we get to James 2? All right. How does James say that we're saved? It's right there. He did it. It's done. Not by our works, but it is by our works. More on that in a month or two. But the point is here, James is front loading his own will. He has brought, finished, finished, brought you forth, given you life, done. And now what Jesus says, it is, you say it finished he did it but god brings forth light look at verse 15 this was also for the words there look at their verse first second half of verse 15 our sin brings forth death now look at verse 18 but our god brings forth life not just on the day that we were born again not the day we just walked the aisle or prayed the prayer every single day he does it it keeps coming down Beloved, you need to know that. Christian, you need to know that. Jesus not only saved you the, the day that you repented and believed upon him when you were 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, or last week. Jesus saved you on that day. I might argue he saved you 2,000 years ago. I think I could make that case. But he definitely saved you on that day. And listen, he's saving you right now. And guess what? He'll save you to the end. Because every single thing that he begins, he finishes. He loses none, Jesus says in John 6. None can snatch them out of your, his hand. Every day he holds us fast to the end. He did save, he is saving, and he will save. He, is, he did bring us forth, he is bringing us forth, and he will bring us forth. Grace and goodness coming down every single day. James is saying, all right, you're perplexed. You've got all these trials, all these temptations. You're failing or things are hard. James is saying, look at your salvation. You didn't do anything to deserve that. And he brought it forth in you. He gave it to you. And he's glad that he gave it to you. He's got no regrets, guys. No regrets. He doesn't look at you and say, hmm, wish I didn't save Winston. Dang it. No, he's glad he saved Winston. Romans 8 says nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. Including our trials and temptations. Amazing. By the way, if that truth, your salvation, is not a strong enough apologetic, a strong enough idea to have you to conclude that God is good amidst your trials and truth, if that's not a strong enough apologetic, a strong enough truth, it might be because you don't treasure the salvation that you have enough. Man, just go back and think about how good God was to give you eternal life at the cost of his son. And that leads me to those of you that are here that may not be Christians. 
Maybe you've been that first soil and this word has sort of gone and left and you've never believed it. Maybe you realize when I was walking through those soils at the beginning, you're kind of like, hmm, I might be those middle two. Well, let me show you eternal life. I've been talking about this word of truth, right? It says word of truth brought you forth. Our sin brought forth death. The word of truth brings forth life. That's what verse 18 says. And some of you non-Christians or somebody maybe thinking about following Jesus, you're like, what is that word of truth? Well, let me show you it from another passage in Ephesians 1. There, it's really clear. I think it's clear in James 1, but I think it's even more clear. It'll help you kind of eat it and digest it a little bit more. And I'll conclude. Ephesians 1, 11 to 13 says, I want you to listen for that word, word of truth, connected to salvation. That's the case I'm making from James 1. Let's see if we see it here. Ephesians 1, 11 to 13. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, and it says, In him, in Christ, we have obtained, finished. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of what? His will. Same language. He works all things when the counsel of his will. Why? Why? So that we who were the first to hope, this he's speaking of Christians, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard, there it is, when you heard the word of truth. Now some of you say, all right, can you use a different way of describing that, Paul? Paul says, sure. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Word of truth is the gospel of your salvation. And believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Sealed meaning you can't open it up again. It's done. In other words, what Paul is saying here, what James is saying, is that when Jesus Christ, he took on flesh and lived a sinless life and died a sinner's death on the cross, he took the payment of the sins of all those that trust him. And he took the anger, the wrath that should have fallen upon me, on Nathan. Jesus took it for all those that trust him. And he makes that payment. He makes that payment of redemption, that propitiation. He quenches the wrath of God on our behalf. And he does it willingly of his own free choice. And Jesus then takes our sin upon himself. And he takes his righteousness and places it upon us that believe. And declares us righteous. Declares us justified. Can you believe that? And then he buries he's buried he dies so he's sin he takes the sin of death upon himself though he had committed no sin himself and he's uh, he's buried in three days he rises from the grave revealing that his payment was received by the father and he overcomes death and he brings forth life and so therefore just as happened with jesus he takes our sin and life comes as a result so in the same way we trust him his death our death his life my life he brings forth life in me and that's the word of truth that's good news that's good news. That's why we call it gospel. Good news. He did all of this not because of anything good in us, but only because of his free and sovereign will to give us eternal joy with him. Every good, every perfect gift is bound up in the gift of God's own son. And from Christ, from him, from him, we then illustrate the life that he gives us in the first fruits. And we're going to talk about that more in the next few weeks. But let me finish with this, this wonderful thought. How is it we know God is good when we are tempted to believe otherwise? What is it we can point at? What is it we can set our minds upon when our hearts are not there and we're prone to wander? We look to the perfect gift of Christ. 
Not only coming down 2,000 years ago, but coming down right now. Right now. Coming down. In this moment. It'll come, By the way, it'll come tomorrow at 4.23 a.m. when you're asleep. Still coming down. Right? Thursday, 2.32, you sinned again. Still coming down. <laughs> Friday afternoon, you get a phone call. Terrible, terrible news. You're being deceived to believe bad things. Still coming down. How do we know? Because I look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith, who saved me, is saving me, and will save me. Look to Jesus, coming down by the work of his spirit, testifying to our spirits in faith that he freely and lovingly, of his own will, decided to give us that believe life. Through all the various trials, and Jesus himself entered trials. Jesus willfully entered temptations. Hebrews says he was tempted in every way and yet was without sin. He paid the price of your redemption, Christian, so that you and I could know and enjoy him in a fully restored world together with him forever. Fully restored world with him forever. If he would do that, if God would do that, if God would not spare his only son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things, every good and perfect thing? Beloved, look back at Christ, look at Christ, look at his cross and look forward to the new Jerusalem where there will be no more trials, no more temptations, but only eternal joy with Christ and with one another in that love. And let those realities quiet every doubt about God's goodness when you are tempted to doubt. And when the trials are so loud, you are tempted to doubt the goodness of God and salvation. Also, more practically, lean into the life of the church. Lean into the life of the church. Let me come right here every week and remind you of this gospel. He's good. He's good. Come here. Lean in when you're tempted. Come in. Come. Let me remind you. Let your brothers and sisters remind you as they sing this gospel week after week. Let the Lord's Supper that we'll take tonight together, let that remind you. He's good. He saved you. He is saving you. He will save you. Let the church pray for you. Let them weep with you. Let them laugh with you. And maybe carry you on home to heaven. And we'll get there soon enough, beloved. We'll get there soon enough. And we'll be glad we gave our all to Jesus. And concluded he was good amidst our trials and temptations. We'll be there soon enough. Don't be deceived. Know the truth. Believe the goodness of God as his saving love comes down day after tiresome day. And soon enough again we will be home. Do not be deceived. Believe the truth about God. See his goodness in the gospel and let steadfastness have its full effect that you and I may be perfect, complete, lacking and nothing. And then we'll be home in that place where we will lack no more and we will say, yes, he was good. See it in Christ. See it in his cross. See it in heaven. And soon enough, we'll see it face to face. Let's pray together. Lord, some know this passage right now. And they're wrestling. The deception is all around them. Trials are loud. Temptations and the failure therein are really loud to them in this moment. And I'm asking you, God, please let them not be deceived. 
Know that they are beloved brothers and sisters in Christ. Those that trust you. And may they know that they're beloved because they look at your son. May they know that you're good because they look at your son. May they know that you're good because they look at his cross. May they know that you're good because you've given them heaven. May they know that in between that day 2,000 years ago and the day ahead, may they know all of that love, all of that goodness between that day and the coming day is still coming down. And may that have them to conclude, I don't understand this, God, but I know you're good. May they lean into the life of the work of the church so that we can help them keep believing that by the power of your grace. It's not us. It's all your grace. As you said, it's your own will. It's not us. May we believe that you're good. And may we be the kinds of witnesses where other people are going through hell and we say there's a heaven and it's good. And I know that because of Jesus. Come, follow him with me through this valley and we'll get home. Thank you for the hope of Christ. Thank you that it was your own will that you have brought us forth. And so now, God, I pray, bring us home. Get us home. It's hard here, God. It's hard. But we believe you're good. And we're going to sing about it right now. Amen.